And you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Salmon. 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 To Salmon Fest Radio. Hello and welcome to Salmon Fest Radio. I'm your host, Dave. And I'm Satchel. We're coming to you from the cozy studio recordings of the basement of Cook and Lick Keeper. <laughs> and we're here today in Homer, Alaska, the ancestral grounds of the Denina and Supiak people who have stewarded the salmon landscape for time and memorial and are still here today guiding and helping us all be better stewards of this place that we all love. If you're a regular listener to Salmon Fest Radio, brace yourself. We're going to throw away the regular recipe that we've put together over these last two seasons and do something completely different. That's right. We're taking you back to Salmon Fest 2022, where we're going to take you on the grounds and really get deep and explore the area of Salmon Fest that we spend a lot of time in, the Salmon Causeway. One of the distinguishing features of the Salmon Causeway are the Salmon Peace Flags that folks have created at Salmon Fest years past and hung from the inlet stage, which is kind of the more singer-songwriter stage that graces the causeway space across to the booths. And it creates this really colorful, vibrant space for folks to have these conversations and enjoy the music as well. What's the Salmon Causeway? The Salmon Causeway is the aisle of salmon champion nonprofit organizations that come together at Salmon Fest to share their work in protecting our salmon systems across Alaska and give you opportunities to support that work and take action. And the Causeway dates back to the original salmon stocks, doesn't it? I mean, the whole purpose of Salmon Fest from the beginning was to protect salmon and salmon habitat from a number of threats, including mm, maybe large-scale open-pit mining. It's a, it's a tradition, and it's part of the core of the festival itself. And I'm so glad that you and Kira had time to pull people aside and talk to them about why they're there and what they care about. Yes, yes, the tradition is going strong, and we're going to bring you a little taste of all those organizations and efforts from this last year. And to kick us off, we're going to we're going to ground us in the causeway space. We've got a new causeway coordinator and Lake Keeper used to kind of steer the ship in in Salmon Fest's nonprofit engagement and we've passed the baton to a really young enthusiastic coordinator named Foot and we had a chance to sit down with them. Hi, I'm Footy the Clown. I'm the causeway coordinator. You don't see often beautiful clown makeup, but you are sparkly and big red cheeks and red nose, and it's adorable. Can you talk to us a little bit about your role at Salmon Fest? Yes, I'm the Causeway Coordinator, basically bringing in all the nonprofits and organizations that are doing stuff for salmon and water and land and people. So I call it the salmon part of Salmon Fest. I'm also kind of the performance artist liaison in the sense of bringing in the carnival people that are performing around the festival, but mostly in the causeway to draw attention to all the wonderful activist work and frontline salmon protectors. Yeah, we've talked to a lot of those people already. There's a lot of really awesome, diverse issues represented here in the causeway, and people have a lot of great opportunities to take action. Yeah, you said you were coordinating performance artists. Can you talk about what kind of artists you've brought in? Yes, we brought in Alaska Fire Circus and Cirque Roots 
which are both basically small circus troops, um, either based in Alaska or partially based in Alaska. Um, we've got stilt walkers going around. Um, we also got a drum group from Kenaitse Tribe, Heartbeat of Mother Earth. They performed this morning and it was really magical. I teared up a little bit. I also had to defend them a little bit from people trying to impose and lead, which was really interesting. Um, but it's a step forward. Yeah. Someone told me in one of the porta potties, someone tagged like decolonize Salmon Fest. And for me, it was really cool to have that happening. And at the same time, we have a very close local, you know, Kenaitse tribe drum group who came and had a really beautiful experience. Like I was really happy. They were really happy. You could tell the crowd, they started off our day, essentially, Saturday, which is the biggest day. Um, so I just feel like Salmon Fest is taking baby steps towards having these better relations, and I'm hoping that other people kind of see that as well. We're also trying to make the causeway poppin' so more people know about what does Salmon Fest do for salmon. There's so much going on at Salmon Fest, and it can be hard to, like, if you're just like wrapped up in the music and the party of it all, like it can be easy to miss this area. And you've done a really awesome job of creating fun and alluring ways to pull people in. And it's, it's really cool that some of that is local indigenous artists, some of that is like performance circus artists. What kind of workshops do you got? Earlier today, we had Denina Place Names, which was basically breaking down um, in Denina language um, what various geographical places' names mean. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. We also are having Denina Children's Stories tomorrow morning. Right now, Birth Control for All Bodies is happening from uh, Kachemak Bay Family Planning Clinic. And then tomorrow... We're gonna have a history of abortion and reproductive rights from Northwest Abortion Access Fund. Um, super stoked on native games. We have some people who were just competing in WIO, which is like a huge native games, like native Olympics competition. So we have a really epic crew coming to do a native games demo and then parades. We've got the still walkers, we have the fire spinners, we have like the kids joining with streamers. And the fish, right? Yeah, we have Sylvia. It's her first year here at Salmon Fest. I wish I knew the name of the gentleman who made the fish. Do you know his name? Josh Nordstrom. Josh Nordstrom. Made giant salmon puppets. Biggest salmon puppet I've ever seen. Like we need six people need to <laughs> carry each yes. salmon. Um, and then there's also Big Red. And then there's King Sam. King Sam is the biggest and the heaviest. Yeah, so Sylvia and Big Red did their debut today. It's always a fun element to see massive salmon floating through the crowd. Yeah, everyone's stoked and like taking photos of our parade. And I get up on the mic as often as possible to explain what is the causeway. I realize not everyone understands what that means. So I've been saying the hallway of causes and nonprofits and people who do stuff for salmon. And yeah, thanks for helping me be the causeway coordinator. Gotta give a lot of credit to Satchel and for Cook Inlet Keeper for helping hold it down. They really helped pass on the reins smoothly. We're very smoothly. happy to pass the baton and excited to have new energy infused into it.
I'm sitting down, it's Saturday at Salmon Fest, and I'm with Nels Yuri. And fresh off a of Bristol Bay fishing boat and still in Bristol Bay garb, it looks like you've got definitely Grundins and definitely sporting a pretty strong message. <laughs> the Grundins are pretty fully covered in no pebble mine stickers, which I'm sure all our listeners know what those look like as we've been fighting this mine for over two decades now. For longer than I've been alive. Yeah. I'm 26, so. Yeah. Yikes. How has your Salmon Fest been so far, Nels? You know, this is my first Salmon Fest, and I am enamored at uh, all the salmon advocates, salmon lovers, salmon champions here. Uh, I didn't know what to expect when I came here, to be honest. Uh, it is way more festival-esque than I thought. People look like they're going to the Coachella of Alaska, which is essentially what we are here. Um, Obviously, I had to sport my outfit as well. I knew first Salmon Fest had and to go. You had look to, great. Had to show up and and be a looker, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's been uh, an amazing experience so far. It's just a great energy here, and we're all here for one reason or another, and related to salmon. What's the reason that you're here? Well, I'm actually here with Commercial Fishermen for Bristol Bay, uh, which is a subsidiary of United Tribes of Bristol Bay, and we are currently in a comment period for uh, the Pebble Mine, and we are collecting comments from Salmon Fest goers and advocating for permanent protections in Bristol Bay. We make sure that our message is in line with tribal values from United Tribes of Bristol Bay, and we also advocate just for our industry, like the actual like fishing industry out there. United Tribes of Bristol Bay advocates for the tribal voices of the region, and we try and make sure that we, we do that for fishermen in Bristol Bay. But our main fight right now is Pebble Mine. Eventually, we'd like to do other things, but the one critical threat to our industry right now that we have tangible action to stop, it, we feel, is Pebble Mine. So that's where we're focusing all of our efforts right now. Awesome. And you're a Bristol Bay fisherman yourself, I imagine. I am, yes. I'm a second-generation Bristol Bay fisherman and a drift permit owner. And I, yeah, this is my 13th season out in Bristol Bay. Uh, so I've been doing it now officially for half my life. Um, which is rough to think about at 26. Um. <laughs> <laughs> How was the season relative to the other 12 years? Oh my gosh, it was absolute insanity. The most fish ever recorded returned to Bristol Bay this year, over 78 million. And I can't even fathom 78 million fish because it's a lot. Um, everyone had amazing seasons out there, record-breaking seasons. And uh, yeah, there's there's no way to describe what happened out on the water that season. There were fish everywhere. Just completely saturated in fish. Yeah, and it really goes to show you that, you know, a resource like that needs to be protected. I mean, it's one of those moments where you're like, this industry, quote unquote, or this really phenomena is so much bigger than, than all of us and really puts in perspective your place in the world, um, at least in my my humble experience. Absolutely. Can you tell us about your conversations and how they're going with like the average Alaskan here? Well, the average Alaskan has probably heard about the Pebble Mine. There are bumper stickers everywhere. I feel like if you're Alaskan, you, you relatively know about Pebble Mine. What's been really exciting is all of the people from out of state that come here and I feel like helps our movement because it shows the EPA, okay, this isn't just an issue that Alaskans know about that affects them. Like all these people from all over the United States now know about this horrible, horrible idea and want to make their voices heard and, and not uh, let it happen. So yeah. that's what's been, I think, those have been the most uh, genuine and meaningful conversations for me here. Awesome. Bristol Bay feeds the world. It truly does. 
And what is your vision for the future of Bristol Bay? Like, what are your hopes and your vision for it? My hopes and visions for Bristol Bay is that the wilderness never changes, is that it stays exactly how it is. And uh, I'd really encourage anyone who has not been to Bristol Bay or doesn't know much about Bristol Bay to look up pictures, look up videos, and to eventually get out there and, and try and experience it. If you were to share like one short story from your experience growing up fishing, is there one that comes to mind? Yes. Last year, my wife and I welcomed in our, our firstborn daughter named Thule. And at the end of the summer, we got to go pick our subnet with her. In our waders, we had her in a little backpack. And that was a really special moment, was uh, that generational passing on of like, this is what we do. We're salmon people. Um, we go out here and pick the subnet, go home and can fish, jar fish, smoke fish, put them up for the winter. And that was really special at the end of this year, is getting to give her those first experiences and see her touching salmon and interacting with them and trying to eat them before they've been cooked in any sort of way. Um, <laughs> but that was, that was wonderful this year. That's special. Flyerweed and rhubarb wine Sometimes it's day when it's night Sometimes it's nighttime when it's day My name is Molly Dishner. I'm the Communications Director at United Tribes of Bristol Bay. So can you tell us about the mission of UTBB? Sure. Um, so United Tribes of Bristol Bay was formed in 2013 by a group of tribal governments um, that wanted a tribal voice in the fight against Pebble Mine. Most of them had already been active, uh, some of them for more than a decade in that work, but they wanted to come together. Um, since then it's grown. There's now 15 tribes that are members and it's uh, just like a political subdivision of all those tribes, so it's considered another government entity. Um, but its its main purpose is fighting Pebble and protecting the cultures and people of the region. I'm curious about UTBB in terms of how you represent the 15 tribes. Like, do you have board members that are from each of the tribes, or do you have specific meetings that pull together 
representatives of all the tribes. Um, um, both, I guess. Um, yeah, we, so we're really, our board is pretty heavy in directing our work and our strategy. And there, there's 15 board members, one from each tribe. The tribe gets to choose how they choose their representative. Um, whether it's an election or an appointment or what they want to do. And then the board chooses, like, their leadership. Um, so the full board meets probably quarterly. And then the leadership committee, called the executive committee of the board, meets, I don't know, monthly, sometimes more than that. Um, so they're, like, pretty involved in the day-to-day -day work. The goal is to carry out sort of everyone's vision. Right. Which, you know, 15 tribes could have 15 perspectives, but we do our best to... Uh, find the parts that do have consensus right. for our work. Can you talk a little bit more about where you found consensus and what that shared vision is for the future of Bristol Bay? Sure. Um, I think all 15 tribes pretty strongly want to see the salmon-based cultures exist. There's three main cultures in Bristol Bay, the Yupik, Dena'ina, and Aludic people. Uh, sometimes that's called Tugpiak. Um, and pretty much all 15 tribes just believe that that way of life should be available to their children and their grandchildren, and the goal is to protect it. And, you know, Pebble is one of the biggest threats to that way of life because it's so based around the natural resources. Um, so there's a long history of stewardship, and I think they just see it as continuing that. Great. Maybe talk a little bit about permanent protections for Bristol Bay and the mechanism that's on the table now and other mechanisms you'd like to see beyond this right now? Sure. Um, our our board has endorsed sort of a two-prong approach to hopefully permanently protecting Bristol Bay. And the first is the one we're really focused on right now, which is securing EPA protections. And basically under the Clean Water Act, um, the EPA can say that a place is too special or too unique or like too important to let to risk that development will ruin it. And so we're asking them, and they're working on, some protections that would say the headwaters are off limits for a mine like Pebble. Um, it's, sort of, it's a multi-step process. They're just in a public comment period right now, so that's what we're doing at Salmon Fest, is collecting those comments. And then we'll, we'll keep encouraging them to really um, make sure the protections are as comprehensive as possible, and we hope they'll be finalized by the end of this year. Um, and then the other piece would be we'd like to see the broader area protected. Those protections are fairly narrowly focused geographically, and our board would eventually like to see the whole watershed um, a little bit more safeguarded. But what that looks like is down the road, I think. Okay. Any other, like, takeaways about Salmon Fest? How would you like to see it evolve in the future? I'd love it if it didn't have to focus on Pebble because we were done with that fight and yeah. we could be more worried about all the other salmon. Yeah, we'd like that too. <laughs> yeah. We'd like that too. I'm so glad that Alaskans stand up so strong time and time again and are so persistent in the fight against Pebble Mine. I'm excited for Pebble to be stopped so that there can be more space for the other salmon systems that are struggling. It's so easy to get behind Bristol Bay because it's such a abundant and crazy productive fishery and um, we know that our fisheries are so much more than the like monetary value that they bring in and there's not like the fishery on the Kuskokwim or the Yukon are no less important than Bristol Bay to the people that live there. Yeah like it's still people's hearts yeah. in those rivers. If you're just joining us this is Salmon Fest Radio and our special edition on the grounds tour of Salmon Fest 2022. 
We've done three interviews already. We've got three more on deck. If you'd like to hear the entire episode or any of the episodes that preceded this one, you can find that wherever you find your podcast or at salmonfestradio.org. So, Satchel, who else did you bring along? Who else did you have a chance to interview at the Causeway? We sat down with Ryan Astelos from the Salmon State booth, who brought a new issue to our attention. Ryan, it's so good to sit down with you. Thanks. Lovely, lovely day for it. Lovely day for it. Uh, I've known you a while. You're actually still... Ryan Bossman in my phone from 2016 when Ryan hired me to be a canvasser. I love Salmon Fest because like it brings so many people who've been working on salmon issues together for so long. Um, like it's it's a big reunion and right. Um, right. it's a great environment to have a reunion because we all get to have a little bit of fun together too. Yep. And still have really awesome continued like salmon advocacy yep. conversations with people. Yep. I know you well, obviously, but can you tell our listeners who you are and who you work for? Yeah, totally. So I uh, work for an organization called Salmon State. We have folks in Anchorage, Homer, and Juneau. Uh, our office is based in Juneau. And we work on uh, various uh, salmon habitat-related campaigns. Yeah, and I live and play in Anchorage on Denial Lands. And yeah, that's cool. me. Cool. So you have a booth. What are you talking about at your booth? Yeah. So we're talking to folks under the banner of Defend the West Sioux. It's a relatively new campaign. And basically what we're doing is we're uh, getting the awareness out about a proposed road. Uh, it would be an industrial access road into the West Sioux. So it would start in the Big Lake uh, region and go out to a point which called uh, Whiskey Bravo Airstrip. And it's an area where a lot of uh, mining claims are at. And there's a particular mining company, uh, Nova Gold, which is an Australian company that's been exploring under the Estelle project. And they are in cahoots with a quasi-state corporation called Ada, which I'm sure that most folks are aware of. They're behind a lot of boondoggle projects. And... Boondoggle is great. <laughs> great. Do you want to um, say what ADA stands for? Yeah, sure. Uh, Alaska Industrial Development 
uh, an export authority. Ada's uh, behind uh, a lot of things. You know, I'm sure folks are very familiar with the Ambler Road that's been going on up in the, in the north, and they're behind that as well. Yeah. There's um, some reports that have been coming out recently that you know showcase a lot of the mega projects that have been failing over the years in terms of you know the revenue return. And this is just one more example of them using state-funded uh, resources to do this, where you know the road is projected to be between 300 and 400 million dollars, or even upwards, uh, once all is said and done. Uh, that could definitely be used for you know, critical services that people rely on. You know, every year we see the legislature battle it out over the budget, and you know, now they're proposing to spend an absurd amount of money to, to build a uh, gravel road to access claims for an international company that doesn't really benefit Alaskans. And that's absurd because at the same time, you know, they're going to be affecting businesses uh, that rely on bringing people out there to fish and hunt. They're going to be affecting the private cabin owners that are out there. And at the same time, this is traditional hunting areas for the Alaska Native people. So, you know, it's just not a really good use of public resources to build this. Can you talk about how the road would affect salmon and salmon habitat? Yeah, so the road is projected to cross 180 times over streams. There is several streams that are known to be cataloged under the Anadromous Waters Catalog, and that's basically how we know that salmon are there uh, for the gist of it. And, you know, there's 170-some culverts that they're proposing, which is crazy to me. And the reason that I say that is, is because, you know, we've we, uh, from the different studies that have been done about fish passage and how culverts are not good for salmon or other fish to migrate through the waterways, and they're actually spending millions of dollars, you know, ripping out culverts and putting in adequate fish passage. And for somebody to come in this day and age and propose a road and not take that into account is crazy to me. So what I think about when I hear like a hundred mile road starting in the valley, in the Matanuska Valley and you know heading north and salmon habitat is I think about like that area super wetlandy. Yep. From the work that we do at Cook and Lake Keeper, we know that the salmon streams in this in the valley, in the Susitna and Matanuska Valley, are warming at really high rates and they're becoming increasingly warm to a point that is stressing salmon and creating unhealthy salmon because yeah. they have heat stress. Right. And the groundwater resources are what's kind of like holding everything at bay and allowing the salmon to continue to exist in those streams because the groundwater provides a source of really cold water in the salmon streams. And when you build a gravel road through wetlands, you're cutting off all this underground water connectivity and creating a, a barrier for that groundwater to get to the streams that needs to to recharge those those cold water inputs. That's a little like Cook and Keeper perspective um, but it sounds like the bottom line is this is a major investment from our state. It's public money. Uh, all it serves is private industry that doesn't actually like give a lot of money back to our state. Absolutely. Do you want to talk at all about like how your conversations here at Salmon Fest have been going? This year? Yeah, it's been amazing. 
it's, you know, folks are just learning about the issue, which is great. That's why we're here. We want to talk to folks and meet them where they're at. I think that uh, it's been really fruitful and it's really fun for myself because I spent many years coming here and talking about the Pebble Mine. And I think at this point, like a lot of people are against the Pebble Mine. They're sick of hearing about the Pebble Mine. It's been going on for years. Uh, so it's really fun to talk about something fresh and new. Um, you know, I love going to Bristol Bay, and it's, you know, somewhere where I enjoy going. But also, the West Sioux is a little bit more closer to home for me. You know, living in Anchorage, you know, I uh, raft and fish on the tributaries of the Susitna River. And so, you know, it's definitely somewhere where I feel a personal investment. Mm -hmm. um, it's somewhere where I want to keep wild and scenic and, you know, keeping that place where I enjoy and helping others uh, enjoy it as well. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for your time. I think this is a great interview. I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've had a, a, a lot of fun doing this. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> great. So let's take a break from our interviews and just sit back and soak up some of the music live from Salmon Fest.
Hi, Satchel. Thanks so much for inviting me on today. My name is Heather Bauscher. I am the uh, Fisheries Community Engagement Specialist for the Salmon Habitat Information Program. Cool. You know, that might be a new role. Correct. It is a new role that I recently transitioned into. I'm in a shared position now between Sika Conservation Society and Salmon State, doing the same sort of organizing work that I've been doing for the last number of years on these various different issues, but now uh, southeast and beyond. Awesome. Well, that's great. <laughs> Love the evolution. Thank you. Yeah. Can you tell us, um, actually, you're going to have to say it again, the organization you work for now. Can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah. SHIP, uh, Salmon Habitat Information Program. Oh, nice acronym. The, the, the great thing about the projects that I'm here getting to share with the public at Salmon Fest um, is that they're all major partnerships and collaborative efforts. And they're all about citizen science and connecting the people on the land and the waters that know the place is best to capture what they're seeing and experiencing and help them contribute to needed um, research and data collection to help drive how management decisions are made. That's awesome. Can you talk more about the, sort of the, the mechanisms for that? Like what are the projects that you've been working on and developing to help citizens? Uh, influence the management decisions. So there's two programs that we're sharing uh, here today and that's the Skipper Science program and the Fish Map app. Cool. So both of these are um, part of the Indigenous Sentinels Network and they're apps that you download on your phone and ISN or the Indigenous Sentinels Network started with Aleut Community of St. Paul out in the Pribilofs mm. and they were doing a lot of citizen science efforts over the last 20 years and more that started out on paper but eventually evolved to this phone app that people could use out on the land. So in partnership with the community of St. Paul, we took the Indigenous Sentinels Networks app and created the Skipper Science app, which is specifically targeted to commercial fishermen who are out on the waters because they're the folks that are seeing the impacts of climate change firsthand and they're the ones that are out there all the time and, and know how things should be or shouldn't be and have the, the history. So if we could create this thing that is in their hands that then also standardizes all of these stories and observations and collects that, then it turns it into data that can't be disputed at regulatory meetings as just anecdotal observations. And it helps us connect the dots with the people that are doing the research and the management where there's gaps in that data or there's gaps in funding and availability to collect that information and try to see where we can connect those dots so that fishermen who are already out there could potentially contribute to some of that data collection. So do they write little paragraphs about what the day was like or like how do they, how do they share that information? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's actually various fields within the app and right now we're still casting a pretty broad net because this is only the second year of the program and you know we've had to go through some guinea pig stages and work out some glitches and stuff but at first we weren't entirely sure what all fishermen were observing or willing to share so we just left it really wide open to see what kind of observations we got and now we're kind of like dialing that into certain categories so we have like weather conditions and changes there or water temperature weird world water blobs requesting observations of unusual algae blooms or presence or absence of different species in places unusual species that aren't expected also observations of seabirds, 
There's also stuff about like presence or absence of sea ice or like walrus haulouts, more targeted for like Bering Sea area. And forage fish observations are really good because there isn't a lot of data with the state on the various forage fish species beyond herring because herring is commercially fished and the other ones aren't. So anywhere we can fill in gaps on that forage fish data. And like if you're out on a troller and you're cleaning your fish, you're paying attention to what those salmon are eating because that's how you're going to target them. So fishermen actually know a lot about what's going on out there and if we can work with folks that are out there to collect these this data and then hand it off to the agencies, then we can better guide how we're managing these resources. Forage fish is like the fish that are lower in the food chain that other fish eat. Is that what that term refers to? Yes, correct. So things like herring, capelin, sand lance are all examples of a forage fish that all the other fish and all the other animals basically depend on from the salmon to the whales and the humans, too. <laughs> cool. So have you had engagement from fishermen? Is the app picking up? Yeah. Last year, we had participation by about 100 fishermen. Our goal is to get at least 100 fishermen involved again this year. We're only asking people to try to make at least three observations. Just keep it small. I mean, folks are... Uh, allowed to submit as many observations as you want, but we're uh, requesting at least three per person for participation in the program this year. There's also incentives to participation, so you get entered uh, in a chance to win a $500 gift card, and the more observations you submit, the more opportunities you get. But we're hoping down the line that eventually this could also turn into a alternate income source for fishermen too, because we, we pay our scientists to collect these, this sort of data. Right. So if we could take some of that federal funding and then trans, transfer it to the folks that are helping participate, that creates another income stream for fishermen too. Yeah, that does not seem too radical to me. <laughs> <laughs> very, very cool program. Yeah, I really like it too because I spent most of the winter at regulatory meetings and there's so many times folks go up to give testimony mm -hmm. and they tell their stories but then it gets dismissed as anecdotal because it's not proper data by certain standards so by creating this platform where we can collect all of this in one place and standardize its collection then it's not dismissible as anecdotal information anymore nice <laughs> love the problem solving so cool that people are organizing and getting this information in the right hands so can you talk a little bit more about the map project you mentioned earlier yeah the fish map app so that is brand new it is rolled out for the first time this summer the app in its current form just showed up in the app store about a week ago and is now ready for people to use i about a month ago spent two weeks in the field Tongas, Petersburg Ranger District, being a former fish tech uh, for the Forest Service before I got into the nonprofit work, I was able to jump on their uh, aquatics team and help with some fish passage work and some pre-stream restoration work and help minnow trap and map some of those streams. And while we were doing the minnow trapping, we tested out the AWC app to, to document the the presence or absence of anadromous fish. And even on even in that area, we ended up discovering a tributary that wasn't even on the map, period, and then found coho in it. So that was cool. It was a new tributary to the stream system that the restoration project was on. 
and it had coho that weren't uh, previously identified. Can you back up a little bit and talk about like the AWC and sort of, yeah. And start with what anadromous means, right? Yeah. So anadromous means fish that need salt water and fresh water. So examples of anadromous fish are all species of salmon, steelhead, certain species of trout, uh, whitefish, ooligan, a variety of things. All of those things are uh, anadromous fish. And an anadromous stream is a stream that has anadromous fish in it. Well, currently, in the state of Alaska, when a project is being proposed to be developed, you have to follow the rules for fish streams, but only if the stream is in the anadromous waters catalog. And currently, for a stream to be listed in the anadromous waters catalog, it requires a tech to be in the field, in the stream, with a fish in hand for it to count as a fish-bearing stream. Well, we all know Alaska's very vast. We have a good bit of data, we do good management, but Alaska is so vast that there's not enough techs in the world to be in all the streams in Alaska when the fish are there, right? So currently, I, I'm not sure that I think it's around about a third of our fish bearing streams are properly documented in the AWC. So this app is another project with the Indigenous Sentinels Network through the Aleut community of St. Paul again. But this is targeted specifically for giving the tools to the people on the land to collect this data on these fish when they're out there. Because we all know that there's probably fish in most of the streams, but they're not all in the catalog. So when you're out there doing your subsistence fishing and you catch a fish, if you're in a place that's not in the AWC, you take a picture of your fish and carcasses or fish in the water count too. And then you hit your GPS point, you upload it, and then it becomes a nomination for the anadromous waters catalog. So like streamlined. It's amazing. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's really exciting. And, you know, I think a lot of people think that there's nothing left to explore or discover or there aren't things that are unknown. And I don't mean to say that we don't have a lot of data because we have a tremendous amount of data, but there's still so much data to gather. There's so much to explore. Like I said, even just down in the Tongass a couple weeks ago, that was a stream that wasn't even on the map, much less documented to have coho. Mm -hmm. cool. Super exciting, super fun, and we're... We're in the early stages of the Fish Map app, so that hasn't gone full public yet, but we're trying to work with um, specific targeted partners who are doing other resource monitoring, whether that's federal agencies or tribal consortiums. And we're, if, if folks are out there listening and they want to get involved with the Fish Map app or have us come try to do a project or a field testing um, situation with us, We'd love to work together to come to your region and help show you how to work with the app and try to document more streams in the catalog. Very, very cool. Each one has a website, so you can go to www.skipperscience.org to sign up to participate in Skipper Science, or to get involved with the Fish Map app project, go to www.alaskasalmonmapping.org. Thank you for your time, Heather. This was great. I've learned a lot. And thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to see you again, and it's really been great to be here, having a great time. So many people coming together for the love of salmon.
the caravan down to Homer today. Gotta make a trip when the photons play. Had a Hawkeye came right in front of me. I got a big sign I could not see. Said the work gets done, but the pay is shit. The academy, son, this is it. It's cold as an old window pane. Shot the books till I It's cold as an old window pane. Shot the books till I Fairview and what whoops, baby, raise the roof again. Then we're drinking real late in the CD bar, then some fireworks and sleep in your car. All the peeps in the state, it's a big hot podge to get out of cave at the St. Lodge. It's cold as an old window pane, sharp like a hook, steady like rain. It's cold as an old window pane, sharp like a hook, steady like rain. My mom only goes out when I go home. We hit the bus to lift, cause the dollar is gone. Said the Stewart Highway gets slick as hell. See us place a black bird of shell. In an avalanche upon ragged top, snow still falls on snowy Treadwell dead at the bear's hand, no good frying pan. Joe Hazelwood, you ran aground, and your mother fucked up Prince William Sound. It's snowing a lot, and then it's raining hard, I'm ice skating in my yard. It's cold as an old window pane, sharp like a hook, steady like rain. Garden at the forest fair, that's why I am a farm there. The marlin ain't a fish, it's a basement bar. The blue bass boys can play guitar. Gonna go get ripped at the brown bear. Those whipsaw fuckers like playing fish. It's cold as an old window pane, sharp looks steady like rain.
You know, one of the best things about Salmon Fest is the reunion aspect of it, that you're seeing uh, artists and musicians that you've seen many times before, you're seeing your friends, and you're seeing along the causeway people that have been involved with protecting Alaska's resources for all or part of their career, and that family aspect of it is terrific. And it's even better when you see new voices entering that family, new groups, including our friends that came down from Bethel to talk about the Kuskokwim and the Donlin Mine. You're right. Yeah, Donlin was a conversation that was really elevated at Salmon Fest this year, and that's because Protect Mother Kuskokwim, a relatively new coalition, came and and had an in-person booth at Salmon Fest and was able to have folks get on stage and share with the Salmon Fest audience what's actually going on in the Kuskokwim region and the threat that Donlin poses. And I think that it's really powerful whenever we can support organizations and people from the regions that are being threatened and having some face-to-face moments with the crowd that's like largely from the road system and isn't connected to these areas. And I, I know that I heard that in the audience, like after Sophie, the gal that we get to sit down and talk with went on, like how much she was able to galvanize the audience's attention and really um, bring to light this issue in a way that felt really grounding and real because she personally is going to be impacted by it. And I think that makes a big difference in, in hearing from people that will have that personal impact who are on the front lines of these projects. And I'm really glad that those voices were incorporated into the festival this year. So we're going into one of my favorite interviews of the festival. This is a Nanaha Sophie Swope. Well, we're here on a blustery, kind of chilly Sunday afternoon at Salmon Fest 2022, and I'm sitting down to talk with Sophie. Sophie, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Anana Chach, Sophie Arinswope, and I'm from Mamtechishluk, also known as Bethel, Alaska. Thank you for coming all this way. It's so great to have you at the festival. Can you talk a little bit about why you're here and what you're sharing with the Salmon Fest audience? I am the director of the Mother Kuskokwim Tribal Coalition, which is an organization built up of different tribes along the Kuskokwim River. And we're all banding together to unify our voices against the Donlin Gold Mine. It's going to be the largest open pit mine in North America and the largest pure gold open pit mine in the world. So it's going to have a massive footprint. So we're here sharing all about why Donlin is not okay and just educating everybody on it. I'm so glad you're here and, you're, and you came from Bethel, the communities that are going to be impacted by this mine, to highlight this important issue at Salmon Fest. Do you find that a lot of Alaskans are still new to this issue? Most of the people that visited our table 
had no idea what Donlin Gold was, or they've heard a little bit about it, but they didn't have any good background information on it. So, I don't know, one person actually started crying because they were so sad that nobody really knew about Donlin Gold, because it is a massive industrial activity that they're pursuing, and everyone is just unaware of it. So, I don't know, it's really cool to be here and just get that education out there. Can you talk a little bit about your community back home and how it's connected to the salmon system of the Kuskokwim River? Yeah, so Bethel is the hub to the Kuskokwim River. There are 56 villages along that, in, in that region along the river. And we all grew up on smoked salmon and dried salmon. And that is just a core piece to our our livelihood. We spend the summers out at fish camp fishing and just spending the entire summer preparing all of that salmon for the winter. And we have ate that same salmon for centuries and centuries with our ancestors just surviving. And that is what we are made to eat and we need to continue to eat that and pass it on to our children, make sure it's still healthy and not full of mercury. We are very deeply connected to the river. It's a really beautiful, special thing to have that resource be healthy and available. The lifestyle that you can build around that is absolutely worth protecting. Can you talk about your experience at Salmon Fest overall? This is your first time, right? Yeah, it's my first time to Sa Salmon Fest, and I don't know, it's just amazing to be here and have the experience of meeting new people and running into friends from home. There's actually a lot of people from Bethel here, and that was a lot of fun to hang out with them. And, you know, being at my first ever concert, this is so amazing. I feel like Salmon Fest is so poised and well put together it's not crazy and chaotic oh i am uh, i'm really glad to hear you say it it seems smooth <laughs> so at the festival you've been here in the salmon causeway talking to people they've been taking action to protect the kuskokwim communities from the potential of donlin mine and you've also been sharing messages from stage what was that like for you here today, I just got done with my last speech and that went really smooth. The first two days I was a little more scripted, but today it came from the heart and I feel like I grasped more energy from the crowd and kind of fed off of that a little bit. And I don't know, it's just been amazing, like all of it together. <laughs> if there was like one thing you want our listeners to remember about the Kuskokwim and about the threat of this mine, What's the bottom line? like? I think the number one thing people should understand is the salmon on the Kuskokwim River is our primary food source. And putting poison into our water or anywhere near our water is just taking away food security to people that are already underserved. With six miles of road in Bethel, you know, we don't have any roads in or out. Food is expensive and it's highly processed for the most part, but when it comes to food security and having your core nutrients coming from home, I think that is beautiful. So save the salmon. Where can people who are listening who want to know more about this issue find out more? 
a good place to go would be nodonlangold.org. And we also have a Facebook. It's called Mother Cusco Quim No Donlin Gold. You could check that out. And an Instagram too. It's Mother Cusco Quim. Well, it's been great to chat with you. I've seen so many people wearing Protect Mother Kaskaquim t-shirts around Salmon Fest this weekend. Yeah, it is so nice to see everybody wearing them. And one other little note is Esther Bean made the artwork on our apparel and stickers. Um, funny little backstory, she was my first friend in kindergarten and we sat right next to each other. So it's kind of an honor to oh. have that connection to the artwork that yeah. we're sharing. Yeah, now you're standing next to each other fighting this mind together. So beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Sophie. We've loved getting to know you a little bit and learning more about the Donlin issue. It's been so great to have you here. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you yeah. for everything that you all are doing. It's amazing. Let's keep Salmon and Salmon Fest, everyone. Yeah. So we've taken a little walk down Causeway Lane and met some really interesting people along the way and learned more about Alaska and our connection to fish and, and their connection to the quality of our lives. So that was terrific. All right, folks, we're wrapping it up. You've been listening to Salmon Fest Radio. If you missed some of this episode, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts or online at salmonfestradio.org. This has been another great show. We hope it brought you to one of our favorite places within the festival grounds at Salmon Fest. And if you find yourself at Salmon Fest, make time to go visit the organizations in the Salmon Causeway. They provide so many opportunities for learning and acting to do your part of protecting the salmon landscapes that we're here to celebrate. Sing along now. I feel like pumping it up, feel like pumping it up. So thank you to our Salmon Fest Radio listeners. It's been another great episode. We want to make sure that we thank the people that make it come together. Yep, we've got to thank KBBI for all of their technical help and moral support. We want to thank Pastor Tim for recording the music and sending us some great quality tracks. We want to thank Cook Inlet Keeper for all of the help they've provided over the years. And of course Salmon Fest for putting on the show. We heard from Foot, Nels, Molly, and Heather, Ryan, and Sophie, and some great Salmon Fest artists. And of course, our irreplaceable Wonder Woman producer, Kira Hardy, who is the glue that makes this whole thing come together and keeps us on track. I'm your host, Satchel. I'm Dave. And you're listening to Salmon, Salmon Fest, Fest Radio. Radio.